Last year, the holidays were odd. Many of us didn't gather with loved ones. But this year, we're mostly back around the table, although in some ways, nothing will ever be the same. Many loved ones have gone on, and we've changed. Many of us eat differently now, and some have started new traditions. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, what's on your plate this holiday season? Luz Lopez vividly remembers celebrating Dia Los Muertos back home in Mexico. This year, she has a new face on her altar, her mother's, and she made her own pan de muertos for the first time. Lauren Francis of With Good Reason and Pat Jarrett of Virginia Folklife visited Luz in her Earliesville home to join her in baking the traditional bread to place on her altar. A half a cup of sugar. She loved to cook. She, part of her job was to cook. Um, and that was the reason I, I was always like around her, like, like helping her getting all things to, uh, like ready and everything. So like making this is, it's a little bit of a ritual because I'm like thinking of how she teach me how to do things. So in, in some way, they hear with me and with my thoughts and in my heart and what they say about putting love in something make it, makes it taste better. Um, I think that's true. Like if, you, if, if you, like you put some emotion on what you do, and I think that's, that changed the result. So, yeah, she's here with me. <laughs> and I think she's proud. Yes, <laughs> we need some, oh, we need milk. I think she's helping me getting the 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 recipe right too. <laughs> so um, this is our first dough, and we're gonna let this rest. Um, since I have my my stove um, on since the morning, so it's a little warm here. So we're gonna let it rest there, cover with like growing up with my mom, like making all these. Um, altares and, and, and the food and it was it was it was kind of scary when I was growing up because you know the the dad always scares you when you're like a kid but she um she tried to explain that it was nothing like to be scared of because there was just the you know the souls of your your abuelita and and your tios and tias and all of that and that are coming to visit Two. Um, I couldn't bring a lot of things like I don't have I, I have just a few pictures of my my mom and dad um, and and I don't have like I have a lot of other relatives that are dead but I don't have their pictures with me here so what I do is um, I write um, their name on on a paper and just set it on the on the altar so I can have them like present at least with with their name just to make sure it doesn't fall off or anything you can just so what do you normally make for your altar? Oh, for the altar, um, normally traditional food. Uh, tamales is one, one that never fails to be in the altar. Mole, um, mole. And then like some, some things that your, the, the, your loved one liked, like uh, I'm just going to make tamales because that was one of our favorites, like mm. tamales, pan de muerto, ca uh, coffee. She loved coffee. Uh, maybe some tequila, some cigarettes for my dad. Yeah, cigarettes. Um, Moms and grandmas um, made it, so they, they didn't need that. You get your altar in, in your house, but you also um, go to the cemetery, take some of the the ofrendas, uh, which is the the pan de muerto, to the cemetery. Then you clean the grave, um, set a, like a little altar again with candles and all of that, 
and then sit down ar around the, the grave with your family, um, singing the songs that, you know, our ancestors uh, teach us. And, and it's like a whole ritual. And I, I have really good memories about that. Like, it, it was really, like, spooky because you go into the cemetery at night. So it was a little bit spooky, but at the same time, like, you get to to make death a little bit yeah. more like normal because okay, so you're not afraid of gonna add the orange zest to this part. Kinda work this around. Then we're gonna add some vanilla. Mexican vainilla, it's from Mexico. Mm. A friend, friend brought, brought me this straight from Mexico. Perfect. Mm -hmm. mm. And being so far away from my home, mm -hmm. like living here in, in Virginia, you you miss home. You miss being there, like going to to the to the cemetery because it's just it's just a like a whole a whole experience it's not just pan de muerto is very important but it's it's just a little part of all the 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 tradition so it's a happy thing but it's also like a mix of emotions because you 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 remember like when you were there like with all yeah. your family and 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 here is a little more was lonely you know <laughs> <laughs> You're so talented. Oh, thank you. I just, I just love, I just enjoy so much, you know, cook, cooking and, and just think of the, 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 the finished product and, and, and think of people trying it and say it, oh, it's so good. And, you know, just people enjoying this. It's just, it's a way to make people happy, um, you know, mm -hmm. who, who won't be happy to eat something really good, <laughs> like tasty. Right. Okay, so this is our lemon and, and vanilla one. like quinoa just came out of nowhere. It was that way in Peru, too, where it's grown. Linda Seligman is a professor emeritus of anthropology at George Mason University. She says quinoa used to be seen as chicken fodder, and then almost like magic, it blew up. The United Nations even declared 2013 the year of quinoa. Linda, were you living and doing research in Peru when quinoa suddenly boomed on the international market? No, I actually wasn't. It was when I went back that I noticed that the place of quinoa had really changed. Had you heard about it being a thing in the health food market back then in 2013? Yes. I mean, quinoa was, was everywhere in the mostly middle class and upper middle class grocery stores and a few restaurants. It was just taking off. And I noticed that all of a sudden, you know, farmers were getting interested in growing quinoa. And had you known that quinoa was a crop native to Peru and other places and was being grown more informally before the big boom? Right. You know, the very first time I went to Peru as an undergrad, I remember coming home and finding the older woman whose house I was staying in, where I was living, had something in a ceramic pot, and she was rinsing it and rinsing it and rinsing it. That was my first exposure to quinoa. Um, and you have to rinse it sometimes up to 20 times to get rid of the acidic taste of the bitter outer hull of quinoa, which is actually a seed rather than a grain. 
When you returned to Peru after quinoa had become such a big deal internationally, did you notice it was popular with your Peruvian friends? Not very, no. But everybody recognized that it was very popular to tourists and to the sort of global community. Their focus was on making it a viable export. The more elite upper class in Lima really thumbed its nose at it a bit. Yes. I mean, there's a whole history to this. For millenniums, quinoa, since the Spanish conquest of the Andes, it was viewed as a lowly Indian crop that was fit as chicken fodder. And so it was dismissed, it was rejected. And, you know, many people sort of internalized that and were not proud of the quinoa that they cultivated. Help us understand the long-standing social and cultural divide between coastal Peru and the highlands of Peru. Well, I wouldn't say that it's really a coastal, a highland divide, although that's the sharpest, because within the highlands, there's an equivalent degree of racism against indigenous people. There's a lot more daily interactions between Quechua people and people who consider themselves, you know, mestizo or non-Quechua. It's sharper along the coast, uh, near Lima and, you know, urban areas. But it exists in both places. And, uh, you know, it's based on, you know, a desire to control lands that indigenous people occupied. Um, Goes very deep. A lot of the indigenous people do not think of themselves as dominating their environment, but rather as being part of their environment. And that's very different until recently, what you find among uh, non-Indigenous people. I want to talk about the farmers and the families and the others who participate in the quinoa revolution. Mm -hmm. What had happened in 2013 that spawned the quinoa food fad? Well, the United Nations decided to declare 2013 as the International Year of Quinoa and named Peru's first lady at the time, Nadine Heredia, and Bolivia's president, Evo Morales, as special ambassadors for the International Year of Quinoa. And this just spurred a sort of a frenzy of trying to promote the cultivation of quinoa in the Andes. What's the health food benefit of quinoa? It's just amazing. You know, NASA uses quinoa. It's low in fat. It's rich in vitamins and minerals. It has all nine amino acids, very high protein, and it's gluten-free. Most people call it a grain, but it's not. It's a seed. So you're saying it wasn't super popular on Peruvian tables necessarily, but it has been an important part of the culture. Medicinally, and even during Lent, it plays a role, right? Right. Paratroopers in World War II relied on quinoa because of its nutritious value and its portability. In the countryside, people drink it as a kind of beer. They eat it as a soup. They'll eat it as a starch like rice. And they roast it and then will grind it up as a flour. And now, you know, people are always open to sort of experimentation. So people sometimes try to make cookies. They're making puddings. They're making, you know, different kinds of bread with quinoa. So so there's a lot of experimentation that goes on. But the traditional ways of eating it in the countryside are primarily as beer, as soup, and as a plain starch. They also consider quinoa to have a number of medicinal properties. In the highlands, each day of Lent, there's a special plate that's consumed. And people go high into the mountains and they collect all these medicinal herbs. And on one of those days, that's when they consume this absolutely delicious quinoa soup that's called peste, that's made with quinoa mixed with milk and cheese. And it's delicious. 
What did you find when you started looking into whether, hey, are the Peruvian farmers of the Andean highlands benefiting from this explosion in interest in quinoa? Was this mostly a good thing for them? Did their standard of living go up? You know, they thought it would be a good thing. And initially, when they had, in, in fact, their first crop, the price of quinoa zoomed up and they made excellent returns and they were just thrilled. They were really excited because quinoa is not easy to grow. The actual process of growing it and harvesting it and processing it, those are really labor-intensive and somewhat unpleasant tasks. So, you know, the amount of labor invested in, you know, ratcheting up the scale of quinoa production was hard, um, but they were happy about the returns. Unfortunately, the first year was boom, there was a glut on the market, and the next year was bust. Mm. So the price of quinoa on the market plummeted. That was a very sobering wake-up call because most of these people had not tried to produce a non-traditional export crop. And then the other thing that happened was the demand for organic quinoa skyrocketed. So there was a push to get farmers to grow organic quinoa. That's not easy to do. They worked very, very hard to grow organic quinoa, and they were successful. And afterwards, it was rejected because they said they found non-organic evidence of pesticides. The people say that wasn't us. Either it got mixed with another batch of quinoa that wasn't theirs, but it was a very, very bad thing that happened to them. Other parts of the world are now producing quinoa also, but is there still a perception that Andean quinoa is what we want? <laughs> well, there there are a lot of people think that. They think that because of the soil and the water in which quinoa is grown, it has a different taste than the same quinoa seed that would be grown in Colorado or Sweden, for example. What about you? Do you use any in some of the dishes you make? Very little. <laughs> <laughs> I actually love certain ways that they prepare it in the Andes. And I'll eat a quinoa salad, but I don't usually make it. I have, I think I made it once or twice, and I just didn't like the way it came out. And maybe because I'm not that great a cook. Yeah. <laughs> well, Linda, thank you for sharing your insights with me on With Good Reason. Oh, thank you. It's kind of an extraordinary crop. Linda Seligman is Professor Emeritus at George Mason University. She's worked in the Andean region of Latin America for more than 40 years. Her book is Quinoa, Food Politics and Agrarian Life in the Andean Highlands. Coming up next, will the real pigs please stand up? Not the $4 pork chops that help us get by, but the fatty hogs raised by someone you can see and talk to. Brad Weiss is a professor of anthropology at William & Mary. He says we've been led astray by cheap pork chops that devalue the labor of producing quality meat. But by changing what's on our plate, he believes we can change the world. Brad, you've worked with pigs yourself on pig farms and at farmers markets. Tell me about when and where. I started my work in 2008 in central North Carolina in Alamance County. The farm where I was working was Cane Creek Farm. And at the time that I was working there, there were about 300 pigs, some of them in the, literally living in the woods, some of them uh, living in places where, where, where pigs are born, and some of them living as, as what were called teenagers, uh, where they basically eat as much as they want and hang out with other pigs of the same size and shape and age as, as they are. Would you call them sort of naturally raised pigs as opposed to these giant confining hog farms that most of us have heard of? That is exactly the way that people who do this kind of work would characterize what they're doing. They're raising pigs in ways that, as many of them would say, allow pigs to express their pigness. They get to be pigs, which means that they get to live outdoors in opposition to the large hog houses where 
pigs are kept in confinement in much more densely populated groups. Doesn't North Carolina also have these giant pig farms? It absolutely does. And that's also one of the things, as you might imagine, that motivated so many farmers to go into pig farming was their recognition and their awareness of how much the landscape of North Carolina had been altered by confined animal feeding operations or CAFOs and by the contract system that sustains them. And it's quite unpleasant for the animals and also unpleasant for the people. The working conditions are quite brutal and the lives of these animals is, is quite deleterious to them. How many pigs are on those giant ones? More like a thousand or even more? Oh, more, many more than that. You can have 10,000 pigs in a hog house quite, quite easily. That's not, that's not at all unusual, especially in North Carolina. Why do you call your book Real Pigs? What are real pigs? I call them real pigs because the people who work in this niche of food production more generally think of their food as real, as in some ways... A more authentic. So realness has something to do with the quality of the lives of the, of the pigs themselves and also in some ways the sort of vitality of the, of the farming systems and ultimately for a lot of people the, the, the sort of experience of the meat itself and what, it, and, and what it tastes nice. Yeah, you write that chefs have a particular fondness for this homegrown pork, so to speak. What are chefs noticing and what did you learn from chefs who felt this way? The first thing that any chef would tell you is that what they love about this kind of pork is that it has a lot of fat on it and it has really good quality fat. The flavor of meat is in the fat. That flavor, that vitality, that realness, if you like, is is felt for a lot. And chefs themselves would tell me this is something that they could experience in the fat of um, the pork that, that, that they would get. So they really do like that the fat sort of comes with an extra flavor punch. What do they mean by the phrase snout-to-tail practice in a kitchen? So that is one of the things that was most interesting, the idea that pigs were this little animal that kind of represented the whole perspective of this alternative food movement, of, of, of what people would know in some ways as the slow food movement. And the idea that you use every resource available to to you that you don't waste anything. And pigs really lend themselves to this because they have so many different cuts of pork that are available and so much creativity that can be expressed by using those different cuts. And what that means is that you can literally use every bit of the pig from the snout to the tail. Tell me about the Carborough Farmers Market in North Carolina. It's a market that requires that farmers or their family members actually be present at the market in order to sell their products. That's interesting. That's that's exactly right. That is the ethos of the market. It's a big, it's a large, robust market, especially for a small town like Carborough, just outside of Chapel Hill, uh, North Carolina. And they do require that to be a vendor at the market, you have to come from within 50 miles of Carborough. Somebody in that family, somebody who is part of that ownership has to come to the market. So you're not allowed to like hire somebody to be your market person. You have to actually be there. And that's to assure customers that they will know something about the process of production and they can, as it were, kind of certify that what they're getting is really local. So for somebody who is buying pork at that market, you know, what would they get? First, they'd get a really good story. (laughs) <laughs> about how those pigs, how, how those pigs were raised, um, about what the good practices of farming were. Now, I shouldn't say that's the first thing that they would get, but they would certainly have that available to them, and that would actually help guide customers towards picking something that they might not be familiar with otherwise. There are some people who are literally don't know anything about meat. I had lots of customers who were who were vegetarians and in some cases vegans, but but said, you know, well, I just had kids and I really would like to feed my kid really healthy, good meat. What can you tell me about your pigs? What can you tell me about this pork? And on top of that, I have no idea how to cook this. So can you give me some instructions about what's like really easy and simple to cook? But you also get people who are like looking for the latest, uh, most interesting thing that are very experienced cooks and maybe want something very different. Increasingly, they'll find processed products like sausages, um, meatloafs, bacon, you know, I mean, the fanciest bacon that you can find is usually going to be a big hit <laughs> at, at, a, at a farmer's market. You see local pork as a social movement. What does that yes. mean? How is pork a social movement? <laughs> well, it's all of the activists and farmers and agricultural extension officers that are interested in reformulating the American food system. 
and you have to start somewhere. That's a hard thing to take on. But if you think, what can we do to increase the possibility that meat will always be available locally, that we know it will be healthy, that it will be raised in a way that is better for the environment, that it will be raised in a way that's better for the farmer, that's better for the labor that that goes into the production of, of these animals, and that will be healthy. Because it's a social movement, it has important political implications too. In fact, maybe we can make an effort to, to really change the world, as it were, through changing uh, our, what we put on our plates. Isn't it ironic? You think of the slaughtering of hogs, the slaughtering of pigs, traditionally, as done by maybe a very small farmer out in the countryside, right. feeding his or her own family and neighbors, celebrating around it, that kind of thing. And yet now... That very homegrown, home slaughtered, and cared for and fed pig is inaccessible to the poor. That's exactly right, and I think that's you're, you've, you put your finger right on a really important uh, feature of this whole system, which is that it's being revitalized, right? But it's being revitalized by people who weren't necessarily participants in this system, say even twenty years ago. Certainly not fifty or a hundred years ago. So there's a there can be a real disconnect between farmers' markets, and the sort of wider agricultural community that you're a part of. That is, you aren't necessarily capturing all of the customers who might have grown up in a, in a, at a time and a place where, yeah, they, grew, they came from a farm where that's what they did, where you had a, a pig slaughter and where the, maybe you had all of the neighbors came. Maybe the neighbors were your cousins and you all participated. And those are not necessarily communities that are well-served by farmers' markets. And those farmers aren't necessarily, in most cases, they aren't the same farmers as the farmers that we're talking about, where their lives literally revolved around nothing but those kinds of agricultural activity. So there's a way in which lots of farmers' markets are kind of self-consciously drawing on a certain kind of tradition, but it's not necessarily their tradition. It's a tradition that they know is appealing. There's a certain kind of romance to that tradition, and they are committed to the same kinds of values, but they're certainly not necessarily the same people. And that does play into the difficulties of who is excluded, who is included, you know, in these kinds of worlds of farming and farmers' customers. Brad Weiss is a professor of anthropology at Wayman Mary. His book is Real Pigs, Shifting Values in the Field of Local Pork. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason at Virginia Humanities. It's that time of year when we reach into the pantry for something good to donate to canned food drives. Anna Zeta is director of Virginia Tech's Food Studies Program and author of Canned, The Rise and Fall of Consumer Confidence in the American Food Industry. She says canned foods are almost always in the background, but they've played a huge role in shaping our food system. Anna, you were inspired to dive into the history of canning when you lived in Madison, Wisconsin, which you say is a real foodie area. Tell me what inspired you there. I think that it was um, a surprise to me in some ways that there were places where food just seemed to permeate everyone's sense of what mattered, what was interesting, what brought people together. Um, And I started seeing how normal it was that when people gathered, they didn't necessarily go to a restaurant, but they joined each other in the kitchen to cook. And not just to cook, but also to can vegetables, to dry vegetables, to go to the farmer's market together and, you know, get extra, the cast-offs of pounds of tomatoes that are below that have some blemishes for preserving. Then the ways that those foods often served as gifts as well, that, you know, when someone had a, a birthday or another occasion, someone would bring a gift of food, one of those jars of um, home canned produce or something they'd baked. And, you know, food just seemed to to have this kind of cultural meaning that I hadn't really experienced in a lot of other places that I'd lived. One of the things you've said is that when you saw their beautiful jars of 
clear and lovely foods that they'd grown and made and canned and gifted, it really contrasted with how you think of the commercial canning industries that grew up in America. That's right. And I think that looking at this beautiful jar of glass, um, you know, walls that you can see inside and all the bright colors and, you know, seeing images of people who have big canning uh, pantries and all the different jeweled tones, you know, on one shelf. And at the same time, you then have these industrially produced cans that are, you know, colorful insofar as the labels are colorful. But what's underneath is this opaque metal wall that you can't see inside of. And no one would ever bring an industrially canned can of tomatoes as a gift, right? It, what what makes the home <laughs> canned jar of tomatoes meaningful is, is that sense of transparency. Not only that it's pretty because you can see through the glass wall, but because you have a sense of who made it, in whose kitchen it was formed, maybe what farm those products came from. When did the commercial canning industry spring up? I know during the Civil War, people had tins of crackers, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, the Civil War is an important touchstone for the canning industry. Um, 1820s or so is when it comes over to the U.S. from France and Britain. And the process, you know, the method starts to kind of be spread on small scale at first. But by the Civil War period, the Union Army uh, invests in certain canned foods that they then give out to their Union soldiers, that starts to spread this awareness, acceptance, and taste for canned foods that those soldiers then bring home with them. Baltimore becomes what's kind of known as the mother of the canning industry, and oysters start to be very popularly uh, canned. And then in the Civil War moment, canned condensed milk is called the sick soldier's nectar, this canned milk that could offer sustenance, especially when um, soldiers were in the hospitals or, or army camp. Borden's, Gail Borden, who sold canned milk to the Union Army, was one of the early innovators in that space. What besides condensed milk were some of the earliest widely distributed canning products? You know, ultimately, like the thing that makes canning such a miracle and canned food so new is the way that it makes foods not go bad, right? It really halts this natural process of decay that had, you know, really shaped food ways forever. And so I think some of the earliest canned foods were ones that either went spoiled quickly or were available only very you know, small periods of the year, like peas that were, you know, very associated with an early springtime. Now you could have peas year-round, tropical fruits, pineapples, things that you couldn't have otherwise gotten in other parts of the country. Were people more dazzled by the abundance and the variety of what they could get in a can, or fearful of the idea that some company was actually making their food instead of their own labors and safety protocols. Yeah, I mean, I think the fears were more prevalent than the sense of marvel. The canning industry huh. leaders, you know, the men at the helm of it all, they were certainly amazed by their own products. And they said, you know, <laughs> the, old, the early readings are very hyperbolic in their belief that this product was you know, the most important innovation ever, you know, that like the world was going to be dramatically changed by their products, that these were miracle solutions to hunger and to waste and to perishability. And, um, but it was, it was harder to convince consumers, just, I'm not familiar with eating something out of a metal can that I can't see before I open it. I'm not familiar with eating meat that's been inside of a can for a year that, you know, uh, that was a, a very unfamiliar proposition. There were botulism scares along the way that mm -hmm. rocked the industry. Talk about two of the scares in particular, starting with the olives. That's right. So the first that really reaches kind of national attention is in 1919 and 1920, when there are about 10 cases of people who've died from eating canned olives, ripe black olives that had spoiled such that they developed this botulism toxin. 
because of the moment when this is happening, meaning people are really starting to eat far-flung foods that are coming from all over the country, once these cases are identified as coming from the olives, the public health officials try to trace them back to figure out where these came from in the first place, but the grocery stores are buying canned foods from all over, and so it takes a lot of detective work to determine which California cannery actually produced these cans that led to deaths in Cincinnati and in New York and in Memphis, Tennessee, and, you know, in, in different parts of the country far away from California. There's all these very sensationalist stories in the press that are contrasting the intimate family space of shared special meals and then the grim death, you know, that befalls these families as botulism sets in. And the canning industry really sees this as a major moment of threat because they had just been kind of gaining foothold the early 1920s or a time when more people are starting to accept canned foods and trust them. And then suddenly there's this outbreak that really damages that trust. Then, about 40 years later, you write that two Detroit women died in 1963 after a lunch of canned tuna fish salad sandwiches. That's right. And that shook the canning industry to its core. That's right. Because by then, the canning industry is in a very different position. 1963 is, you know, on the heels of the 1950s, which many call the golden age of processed food, this time when most American huh. kitchens are really reliant on canned foods for so often the majority of their diets. Um, by 1963, they're less concerned about actually changing whatever practices led to these botulism cases and instead to, uh, to be in control of the message. So how did the canned tuna industry respond with marketing? How did they reach out to say, still buy canned tuna, it's great? Right. Yeah. And one of the things by the 1960s, too, is that canned food is now no longer the only kind of processed food. You know, in the, in the early 20th century, they're among the few packaged foods that exist. By the 1960s, there's all these other, you know, cake mixes and packaged condiments and frozen foods and all of these other kind of partner organizations. And so the tuna canners actually partner with other mainstream um industries that tuna is often paired with. So for example, they partner with Campbell's cream of mushroom soup, which tuna noodle casserole, you know, relies on both products or <laughs> with Hellman's mayonnaise for tuna salad. And these other companies help, you know, plaster magazines and um, women's media, especially with ads and recipes reminding consumers about tuna noodle casseroles, about tuna salads, about the partnerships with Hellman's and different tuna companies, and to kind of reassure and remind Americans of these classic standbys and just to remind them that tuna has by now become embedded in these dishes that people trust and want and see as valuable. So there's a lot of industry collaboration in that space. Yeah. That's so interesting because, uh -huh. I mean, I'm part of a generation that grew up on tuna noodle casserole uh -huh. with canned peas, canned cream of mushroom, canned tuna, you dump it all in, stir it up, uh -huh. you know, throw mayo in there and yeah. top it off with canned onion rings. Uh -huh. <laughs> right. Or potato chips. Yeah. Voila. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of diet very much, you know, shaped, I think, the the middle of the 20th century as, as what food, American food was, right? The can, can was very central to that. There, there came to be a snobby factor when it comes to canned mm -hmm. foods, right? Uh -huh. And yet, on one hand, it's a lifesaver. Yeah. And I think that is you know, some of what the industry today is is contending with. Because on the one hand, I think people do still buy canned foods in large quantities, but the associations with it, the sort of stigma attached to it, the way people see it as, yeah, inferior, the subject product of, you know, canned food drives and kind of poverty food in some ways and the association of it as being highly processed or full of salt or these other concerns um, certainly push against the, the sense today of canned food as a standalone meal, at least. I, you know, I've read that now canned food 
especially for sort of middle and upper class shoppers, might be an ingredient in something. You know, you might add it to a pot of chili, uh, canned tomatoes to a pot of chili, but it's rare that people think of canned food on its own as, a, you know, a, a meal. I just feel like these food trends have a way of coming back generation after generation, but with a new spirit behind them, right? That's right. Yeah. And on the one hand, I talk about the way that canned foods might be more, you know, marginalized or less less at the center of, of hip foods these days. But on the other hand, I recently went to a local wine bar in my town and there, right on the menu and in the doorway as you entered, were all of these little, you know, uh, specialty cans of foods, canned fishes and different kinds of oils. And that was what you would order alongside your bottle of wine. And so the canned food in this space had come to represent something very highbrow, something very new and hip in that way. Anna Zeta, thank you for sharing with me on With Good Reason. Thanks so much for having me. Anna Zeta is director of Virginia Tech's Food Studies Program. Her book is Can't, The Rise and Fall of Consumer Confidence in the American Food Industry. Speaking of canned goods, pasta didn't always come in a box. Not at all. My next guest is Melissa Gray. She's a doctoral student at Wayman Mary who lives most of the year in Italy. She's studying the history of national and international food in Italy and the United States. Melissa says American pasta manufacturers started boxing their noodles to distinguish themselves as having cleaner and more reliable noodles than Italian pasta makers who sold in bulk. Melissa, you're in Italy right now. In fact, you're married to an Italian and divide your time between Italy and the United States. Where are you right now? I'm actually in a, in near a city called Brescia. It's a little bit between Milan and Verona, but slightly closer to Verona, definitely northern Italy. Do you incorporate pasta into any of your meals? <laughs> Quite frequently. Oftentimes, if I don't have much time, my my cheater dinner is, you know, taking out some the fresh raviolis, boiling them and having them with a side of salad. So it's always an easy, an easy choice. Is there a pasta dish you love at an Italian restaurant near you? Uh, I think of one of my favorite pasta dishes here. It's kind of a, a thick, short pasta and then there's pecorino cheese and like uh, a bit of truffle grated on the top. <laughs> and and oh, it sounds wow. very luxurious, but you do find truffle quite frequently here and not necessarily uh, the fanciest places either. Your husband is Italian. Does he have a preferred pasta? If he has a choice, he goes for this penne pasta, which is kind of a sh- these um, short tubes that are probably about um, a half inch in diameter. What he tries to avoid, though, is a, a bow tie pasta. He claims it tastes different, but I assure him it's made of the same stuff. <laughs> <laughs> What's his argument for why he prefers one to the other? You know, it, it must be something about how it feels in the mouth. I know there's a an Italian word for uh, the the mouth feel of pasta in particular. As they describe it, it, they seem to kind of connect it to the flavor of pasta. I'll take the word for it, but I do, you know, find more pleasure in the feel of some pastas than others, but not to the point where it changes the flavor. But my husband probably knows more about pasta than I do in that end. You've taken a deep dive into pasta first arriving in the United States. When did pasta come to the U.S.? Uh, that's a good question. The first references I've actually found of it have to do with a dinner served at Monticello by Jefferson after he had been an ambassador to France. Um, and he comes back with this um, pasta-making press from his time in France, where, in fact, there had been quite a few um, Italian immigrants already to France. And so he brings back this pasta press to Monticello, and he serves pasta to his guests kind of as a, as a novelty. And, you know, I know Jefferson had also brought one of his slaves with him. So I don't have documentation for this, but it's reasonable to think that whoever was responsible for, you know, cooking that pasta at Monticello could have been his slave. But 
um, one of the accounts I've read of one of the guests at Monticello, he described the pasta dish as strillions of onions. <laughs> and it makes me doubtful whether or not it was a pleasant experience, but we're talking <laughs> um, in the early 1800s. So <laughs> that's the first reference I've heard of it, like specifically. But really, when you start to see it more frequently, um, is in the later 19th century. And that was when the first large numbers of Italian immigrants came to America? Correct. Um, you, you hear some about the mid-19th century, but really by the end of the, the 19th century, certainly into the first decades of the 20th century. And it really only ends with uh, World War I and kind of how that kind of stopped immigration back and forth. Why were they coming here? A lot of them were coming to kind of work temporarily, save up some money and, you know, either to send it home immediately or to save up and bring it back themselves. For many of the Italian immigrants at that point in time, um, making a permanent home in the U.S. wasn't really part of their plan necessarily. There are um, clusters of Italians, particularly in New York City. You have some in Philadelphia, in Chicago, a few in Boston, a few in New Orleans, um, and also out in San Francisco as well. And, you know, a lot of the cities w would have had kind of these, you know, pockets, these little Italys, but the main ones are really in Chicago and New York. Were Americans surprised to see Italians making pasta? Was that something they weren't accustomed to? I think they were surprised at the way they were making pasta. There are many reports about uh, what was happening in these tenements as uh, these pasta makers were um, drying pasta in environments that Americans found unsanitary, because this is coinciding with this growing awareness about the hygiene of food and what's happening in these large factories that many people don't have direct contact with. There was this one story about a pasta maker in New York that the health inspector had gone to um, investigate. They described the pasta maker kind of making pasta in one room um, and then going into the next to kind of take care of a, a child with diphtheria. This is enters a newspaper and kind of gets circulated in, you know, beyond New York. I think this particular story got carried in, in New Orleans as well. So these kinds of uh, sensational stories that kind of connect unsanitary pasta-making practices with Italian immigrants becomes kind of a a trope, something quite predictable for Americans to hear. Even the pasta that was still being made in Italy had a bad reputation. Another thing that affected this was the fact that most of the pasta that, you know, arrived to Italian immigrants in the U.S., um, they would be shipped in crates. And then once it got to the U.S. And, and to these small Italian markets, the pasta then would be then kind of weighed out and sold in bulk, so not packaged and this became a way for uh, American manufacturers to distinguish themselves from Italian pasta makers to kind of, you know, stress how clean their pasta was because it was made in these factory settings. It was dried indoors, so you didn't have flies or dusts or or carriages um, going by. And then it was also sealed into packages before it ever left the factory. And did that work? The evidence suggests that it does work. The way that advertisers and manufacturers were talking about pasta seems to be how Americans come to see pasta themselves. And I'm, when I say Americans in this sense, I'm, I'm mainly talking about Americans of, of Northern European descent. I look especially at these community cookbooks published from the early 1900s through the late 1920s. And the way they talk about pasta shows that they're starting to see pasta in a way that manufacturers had started to talk about pasta as well. Like Stressing, what? you know, this idea that pasta could be a meat substitute. It was not necessarily Italian. You could serve it like a number of recipes, call it, you know, Spanish spaghetti, spaghetti and oysters, pasta and peanuts, chicken and pasta, or, you know, American chop suey. Or I think one was a, a macaroni souffle with cheese. So <laughs> had a way of talking about pasta that it became of no particular nationality. It was kind of normalized in that sense. And in these community cookbooks, you see pasta kind of 
used in that same way. Either it's extending meat, it could be, a, like I said, a meat substitute because um, the idea was that it had so much protein in this pasta or um, uh, that it was kind of, they were using these recipes that, you know, you know, almost verbatim from what these home economists were developing for manufacturers. These recipes that also would end up on the packages, those key packages of macaroni. When did we start boxing pasta and buying it off the store shelves? Well, from the 1920s, you see the pasta being made by American manufacturers is almost all in, in boxes. And in fact, you see that in recipes, I say a box of pasta as opposed to, you know, maybe necessarily the weight of pasta to use. Would you say that Americans have a different view of what you should put on pasta or adorn it with than Italians typically? Yes, I would say definitely, definitely. One thing I never find on pasta here that I do find it on, in, for example, in California, is chicken. And <laughs> chicken on my pasta. My husband doesn't quite get that one. <laughs> well, Melissa Gray, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. My pleasure, Sarah. Melissa Gray is a doctoral student at William & Mary, the working title of her dissertation is Pasta's Apotheosis, a transnational history of an ethnic and industrial food in Italy and the United States, 1890-1975. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients, uvahealth.com. Virginia Humanities has a new paid fellowship opportunity for humanities scholars affiliated with Virginia's historically black colleges and universities. Selected candidates will be funded through a grant from the Dominion Energy Charitable Foundation. Applications are due by January 7th. Please go to virginiahumanities.org. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Maya Neer and Cassandra Deering are our interns. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.